coming to an end tonight um, in our series we've been doing on how the gospel changes everything. We've been doing that out of the Gospel of John. And so I'm going to speak, I'm going to read a short passage at the end of John chapter 20, almost at the very end of the gospel. <coughs> and bear with me, I have a bit of a cough. Um, so I'm going to read, I don't know if you have that passage. Oh, I'm Verse 26, there we go. So, John chapter 20, verse 26 to 31. Hear the word of God. Eight days later, so this is Jesus post-resurrection. He's risen from the dead. He's appeared to his disciples. Right. So, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Thomas is one of the disciples who hadn't been there previously to see Jesus. So, Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. The wounds from the crucifixion. That's what Jesus is doing with Thomas. Putting his hands in the wounds from the crucifixion. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. <coughs> Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed? <coughs> Have you believed because you have seen me? <coughs> Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Let me open this in prayer. Heavenly Father, bless this word as we gather together here at the end, uh, at least of classes in the fall semester, the last day here on campus in 2016. Bless our time spent just a short while um, uh, seeking to understand your gospel and its meaning in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm especially going to focus on verses 30 and 31. Um, but I read just in context that it's like here, so here John at the end of the gospel, almost at the very end, he's relating this uh, passage, this incident with Thomas, where Thomas meets the risen Christ. And Jesus shows him his wounds. And Thomas, seeing, believes. And so then John, I want to just say three things, as I always do, three things about what uh, John is trying to communicate here, especially out of verses 30 and 31. And first is John gets to the point. John gets to the point. I mean, this is like good writing style in verse 30. <laughs> right? Give the purpose of what you're doing. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? John gets to the point, and he cuts through the noise. He, cut, he, he, he succinct. I mean, what's the material he's working from? John is writing this late in life. He, he's, he was the only one of the disciples to not die an unnatural death at the hands of executioners. And he lived a long life. He did die in exile on an island. But he was, he's writing, he was living in Western Asia, Mayan Ephesus, in Turkey. And he was asked, this is what church fathers contemporaneous at the time say, he was asked there to write, the three other gospels had been written, to write a spiritual gospel. And John has amazing material to work with. Namely, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, of which John was one of the foremost, which are not written in this book. I mean, he says it again at the end of chapter 25, the very last, uh, the end of chapter 21, verse 25, the very last 
verse in the Gospel of John, he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Where were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, you kind of wish they'd written some of those books. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, I mean, paper was expensive then. It was like, you know, you had to slaughter a hundred sheep to make a Bible uh, in the Middle Ages. So, you know, they, they had some encouragement to be careful in their words that we lack. Um, but here, John, even though he has all this amazing material, he knows all the signs and wonders Jesus performed, ultimately. Um, <coughs> it was still quite possible for people not to believe, but he focuses in on what is the most important miracle. What is the most important message? He gets to the point. Uh, I was thinking about this, uh, about a story an alum told me, an alum who graduated in the early 80s, and he was back visiting, and he told this. Yeah, I've heard actually him tell it a few times. And it was, he, he was a student. He was a chem-e pre-med. Any chem-e pre-meds? It's not a good idea. <laughs> you're all wise. You're not doing that. It's like chem-e, like my reputation. I don't know how the department stack up. But that was like the most labor-intensive major. Is that still true? Like just in sheer quantity of work required, hours put in. Right? And then on top of that, pre-med. Let's just add that in. Not like classics pre-med, right? Not history pre-med. I was history major. Not history pre-med. You know, just take some nice humanities classes where you write non-succinct papers without a clear purpose <laughs> statements, and then force yourself to the science classes. No, he was candy pre-med. So he was just drowning in work, and he was on the winter retreat, um, which he got on somehow, despite all his work. And he was coming back from the ski slopes, and uh, a woman on staff at the time, she was sitting next to him, and she said to him, he was just talking to him about how, you know, how he spent his time. He was so laser-focused on his work. That was his role, his purpose and principle. And this is what she said to him. Don't neglect learning the things that are most important. I mean, chemi is great, right? I am thankful for the pharmaceutical. What do chemis produce? <laughs> Chemicals, pharmaceuticals, like that's good stuff, right? <laughs> I'm thankful for that. That's good stuff. I'm also, I'm also thankful for doctors, right? That's a great, that's such a great thing, modern medicine. But, we have to ask ourselves this, this, ask ourselves this question. What is most important? This was a challenge to him in his time at Princeton, do not do work that is valuable, yes, but to the exclusion of that which is more valuable. And so this John here, John has access to so much amazing stuff that we would love to know. So much amazing information, but he gets to the point. He gets to the point. What is his point? He points us, verse 31, to Christ. Specifically, he tells us that Jesus is the Christ. The purpose of what he's been writing is to communicate to us that Jesus is the Christ Christ meaning what? Christ meaning Messiah. Messiah meaning the anointed one that God had promised to provide salvation to the world. And so John, what is his point? Jesus is the Christ. There is a Savior. Remember, I took a religion course back when I was a student. And uh, it was Reformation history. And we were reading all these great theologians of the Reformation era. <coughs> Protestant, the Catholics, Martin Luther, Calvin, Francis of Loyola, arguing with each other. 
And uh, the class, I mean, as it turned out, because it was on Christian theology, almost everyone there was an evangelical Christian. There was one Orthodox Jew and like 13 evangelical Christians. And our professor didn't know what to make of having like exclusively religious believers in his class. And one of my one of my dear friends was in the class, and he was always just we were just he was discussing the passage and just quoting scripture. He's like, "Well, the scripture says." That's what he would always say. The scripture says. And the professor said, "No, no, we are not bringing the Bible into." discussing these theologians. Like, all of them believed in being judged by the scripture, right? But we were approaching the theologians not from a sense of what they were doing, which was struggling fiercely to understand how we can be saved. Who is Jesus? How, what is necessary for salvation? Do I need to work for my salvation or not? Is it a gift from God by his grace? They were, is the authority only from the scripture or also from tradition? They were struggling over these questions, but we were just approaching it. as like, these are interesting things, right? There are a lot of interesting things in the world. There are a lot of interesting things to learn. I mean, Princeton, you get sort of inured to it over time, but like the amount of amazing stuff, talks, that goes on week by week. Right? Now I'm just like all the same. There's snake came, you know, I missed it. I was just, you know, it's just like, 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 you know, you just lay out your schedule of all the cool stuff you could do. <coughs> well, that's how our thing. We live in a world full of interesting things. We, especially in the information age, right? We have like, we have so much stuff just to interest ourselves in, just to think about, just to experience, just to entertain. And so here John gets to the point, and that is what is worth knowing. It is that Jesus is the Christ. So testifying from his own life, we saw him die. We were despair, speaking of the disciples, we despaired over it. What did they think? They thought the Messiah was going to be a political figure who would come and reestablish a political kingdom, who would free them from political control under the Romans. Right? That's what his disciples thought. But then this man who died rose from the grave. Right? This is what they said. Who would have thought? I mean, it's not a religion you would make up. It's like God died on a tree. It was offensive to the Jewish people and seemed foolish to the Gentile nations around them. But this is what they saw. Thomas, how did Thomas respond who initially didn't believe? Thomas went off to India and founded a church that exists to this day. There are many people in this community who come from the Martoma Church in the south of India, so transformed were the disciples by what they had seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So transformed were they. So this is the point worth knowing. This is the message of the Christian faith. Jesus is this man born in Galilee, born in a manger. He is that Messiah. He did die, yes, and he did rise again. So he gets to the point... A second story from that same alum who graduated in the early 80s. This he also loved to say. So again, it was, it was like, you know, he was, again, he was just relentlessly focused on work. Had to be. Uh, doing all that candy pre-med. Just work, work, work. One day, he was walking past where PF had daily prayer. And um, not going in, on his way to Equad. And uh, he, he walked past the, the, the man who founded PF was called Donald Fullerton. He was class in 1913. It was very old at that time. I'm a little senile. Very old. But and Fullerton was walking down to do the prayer. I ran into this guy and recognized him. Didn't know his name, maybe. But recognized him. 
and could figure out that he wasn't, you know, he was headed in the other direction. <laughs> and he, this, is what he, this is what Fullerton said to the student. He said, do you love Jesus? That's what he said, just straight out. <laughs> uh, how would you respond? You're on your way to class. <laughs> right? Some old man <laughs> walks up to you and says, do you love Jesus? So imagine he's, he's a believer, so he's like, yes. Right? I assent to that. Then Fullerton said to him, with all your heart. It's not one thing to say, do you love Jesus? Do you love him with all your heart? And he said, yes. I think that was it. And then he walked on his way. Right? But that was, that was a key moment in his life. It was a key moment in his life. What it said to him, it, it was like Fullerton was putting him on the spot there to say, what is of utmost importance? John is saying, what was of utmost importance to him? Such that he and the other disciples gave their lives, literally, traveled to the different corners of the earth, literally, in order to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah. If this is true, if you're a Christian, if you believe this, do you love him? This is the point of the gospel. Do you love him? If he died for your sins on the cross and rose from the grave such that you could have life, merely if you believe in his name, not if you work hard to achieve certain goals, but merely by believing with true heart conviction in his name. If you have this, then you will be saved. If you have that, then how can we not but love Jesus with all our hearts? What do you love? This is a good, at the end of, end of class, it's like, it's like, could he have said to him, like, chemical engineer, do you love chemical engineering? You know? Do you love it with all your heart? Well, I don't know, you can love academic subjects, right? I don't love learning. Do you love learning? How many people love learning? Anyone left? <laughs> All right, yeah, learning. Yes. Yes, we love learning. That's, I mean, how could you end up here if you don't love learning? You must be really, you know, <laughs> masochistic. You come to prison if you don't love learning. But it's like, with all your heart, is that the whole scope of your life? I mean, there are many people on the faculty, that's probably true. <laughs> who, like, lived, I'm, I swear, in his mind, I think he probably lived in the 16th century in Great Britain. Right, because he never combed his hair, and didn't tie his shoes, didn't button his shirt. It's <laughs> very dramatic to me. It's email or a phone, but man, if you talk to him about 16th century England, it was like, you know, like you were there. <laughs> but it's like, is that worth loving? With all your heart, it's worth loving to a point. Chemical engineer, pre-med, it's not worth worth loving, perhaps up to a point. Do you love it with all your heart? Do you love Princeton? Is that like the whole center of your identity? With all my heart, this, I would lay my life down for Princeton. I mean, I love Princeton. I really love Princeton. It's true. Come to reunions. I mean, people love Princeton. Kind of, uh, they express it in very strange ways. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> With all your heart, is, is that what we are called to do? Like, what is worth that level of devotion? Jesus Christ, more than your family, more than the, the, more than the person you marry, more than your children, he died for us while we were yet his enemies. I was reflecting on this, just, you know, people going out for Christmas, and some, some of us have wonderful, some of you have wonderful families, heartwarming, it's like Christmas, it's like that, you know, it's like, it's a wonderful life, and Jimmy Stewart and Donna Rita there, you know, but it's like, many of you, that's just not true, right? And it's like, for you approach Christmas, was the sort of like, well, I know what the, all the old fights are in the family, right? I know what will come out. It's like, you just sort of wait, you're trying to navigate to avoid, like, 
you know, your uncle and your, your, your dad, like that recurring thing coming up. It's like Jesus, I mean, it's like Jesus knew, he knows all our old fights. We, have been at, we were at war with him from the day we were born. The whole people of the world have been at war with God since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And even then, while we were his enemies, he laid down his life for us. How great a love is that? How can we not but respond with devotion? All right, so that's John's second point. Jesus is the Christ. Believe in him and you will have life in his name. And the last thing I want to say out of this is, so John clearly intends that we would point others to Christ. Right? He gets to the point, he points us to Christ, and he intends that we likewise. Why did he write this? He wrote this for a broad audience in order to point others to Christ, to share the faith. It's the term evangelical that we have in Christian evangelical culture, to share the gospel. An evangelist is one who shares the gospel, the gospel writers called evangelists traditionally. And he intends that we would point others <coughs> to Christ. And how, how can we how can we do that? What does that what does that look like? That claim on our lives. If you're a Christian, what does it look like to have this great love and to not merely to hide it on the side while you're rushing on your, on your way to the equal, but to share it? But if you're not a Christian, what is it to really grapple with, to understand or to hear what it, this message of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done? And to grapple with, is this true? Do I believe this? And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard challenge. It's like we, we are just naturally focused on ourselves and our own desires. And the Christian life calls us out of our own pride. You think of John and his brother James. At a certain point in Jesus' ministry, they asked him, like we, oh, well, their mother did, Can, <coughs> I want my sons to sit on your right and your left when you come into Right? It's like they were focused on like getting the best spots. There were 12 disciples, and there are two spots right next to Jesus. And they had to narrow, or at least their mother did, had narrowed in on it, right? We're focused on our own glory. And so what does it look like to point not, rather, not to our own glory, but rather to Christ? Actually, I want to I illustrate this in the form of a children's story. I have three small children, so this is about my reading level now. <laughs> and perhaps after 12 weeks of Princeton class, this is what you're able to understand. Anyone you know this, the tale of the three trees? Okay, a few of you. I'll paraphrase the tale of the three trees. Um, so there are three trees. This is the story. There are three trees. <laughs> I won't read it. Christina told me it was too long, and you're too old. Um, there are three trees growing on a hillside. My story, my version will be better. No, there are three trees growing on the hillside. That's the story. They look down, they look down. One, the first tree looks down and says, on the town belief on, on the harbor, it says, I, I want to grow to be a treasure chest, to be beautiful, and to hold the greatest treasures in the world. And the second tree looks down at the ships in the harbor. And the second tree says, I want to grow to be strong to be a great ship fit for a king. And the third tree, the third tree looks down on the people and says, I want to grow tall, such that the people will look to me and be pointed to God. Right? The first wanted to be a treasure chest, the second a ship worthy of a king, strong, the third tall, pointing people to God. So one day, the, the, uh, the tree cutters come uh, to cut the trees down. 
And the first one comes and cuts the first says, this tree is perfect. Cuts the first tree down. down. And the first tree says, good, now I will become a beautiful treasure chest. And the second uh, tree is cut down. The man says, oh, this tree is perfect for my purposes. And the tree thinks, I will become a strong boat fit for a king. And the third tree, the third tree is sad because it wanted to grow tall. But the man comes along and cuts it down for lumber. And so the first tree, the first tree, though, goes to the carpenter. The carpenter doesn't need a treasure chest. He's making a feeding trough, a manger, which he makes. This manger is in a stable. Animals eat out of it. And one day a family comes. See where this is going. <laughs> a family comes. There was no room for them to stay except in the stable. And they have a baby. And that baby they lay in that feeding trough, in that manger. And that tree, at that point, which had been so disappointed, that it was just a lowly manger, recognized that it was holding the greatest treasure. The second tree, the second tree wasn't made, it went down to a ship builder. It wasn't made into a strong ship fit for a king. No, it was made into a weak fishing vessel, right? Barely seaworthy that sailed on the lake and was full of dead and smelly fish. And one day, a man and his friends came and were sailing in that boat. And the man was asleep and there was a storm and the friends were afraid, but the man awoke and calmed the sea with his command. And that boat realized, weak and lowly though it was, it was a vessel fit for a king. And then the third tree, if you don't know this story, where does this go? The third tree was just sitting as lumber in the lumberyard. And one day, a man comes and takes two pieces to build, a, to build an instrument of execution, a cross. And this cross was carried by a man, the third tree, and he died on it. And this third tree realized it did not grow to be tall, such that people would look up at it and see God, but rather, even in its humility as a cross, people forever, throughout human history, will now look at it and be pointed towards God. I was reading that to my kids the other day, and I think this, it's a beautiful image of what does it mean, if, if, if you're a Christian, what does it mean to try to point others to Christ? Often it doesn't mean we're being glory. Typically, it doesn't bring us great glory. Right? It's like as Princetonians, what we think about is, how can I get my name up in lights? Right? Even if you're not thinking in those explicit crass terms, but we want, like, how can I live my life in a way that looks cool on social media? Right? Such that people will be like, that is awesome, what you are doing, what you have accomplished. But to follow Christ, to serve Christ, and to point others towards Christ, what does it require of us to be humble? To recognize our own weakness and our own brokenness. It's a very difficult thing. To be able to confess, yes, we did do need a Savior. And let me tell you, there is such a Savior. Jesus Christ, born in a manger, who could command the winds and the waves, who died on a cross, but yes, and rose again. So my encouragement to you over Christmas, as you go home, as you travel, wherever you're going, rejoice in that we, a Savior, was born into this world for us. If you're not a Christian, spend some time when you're away from class grappling with that. If you're the kind of student who is just always on the move, seeking after things, yes, that are good, but that are not eternal, Spend some time and focus on this, that John said that the Christian church has testified to for these thousands of years is of eternal importance, worth loving with your whole heart. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you.
thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him not as a political king. You didn't send him to be born in a palace, but rather in a stable. Heavenly Father, that you accomplished your purposes of salvation, confounding the strong and the mighty of the world, and that you demonstrated the greatest love in that Jesus died for us while we were yet still his enemies. Heavenly Father, how great and precious a gift this is, how beautiful a truth. Lord God, I pray that we would be vessels, we would be instruments in your hands. We would be willing, Heavenly Father, to lay aside our own our own <coughs> empty ambition. Heavenly Father, may our ambitions be to glorify your name, to love sacrificially as you loved us, <coughs> to serve as you served. Pray, Heavenly Father, bless us as we go home over Christmas. For those who aren't going home, as we travel, or as if many are staying here, I pray that you be with us in these next weeks time of rest and refreshment and recuperation, and above all, Heavenly Father, times of joy and worship and glory to God. pray this in Jesus' name.